A special thanks to Club W for supporting the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Remember, you get a $13 bottle of wine for free when you become a new member. Go to clubw.com forward slash Taoist, T-A-O-I-S-T. Thanks, Club W. Nice to have you along. Now it's showtime. Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. Headquarters of the future capital of the free thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again as Dr. David Schechter joins us to discuss his revolutionary book, Think Away Your Pain, a fresh approach to relieve suffering and eliminate chronic pain by looking at the brain, the body, and emotions as a unified whole as well as the importance in giving folks hope that they can get better, and how the placebo effect accesses the underlying healing capacities of the body. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows Podcast begins now. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Episode 57 of the Drunken Dows Podcast. They just keep cranking off today an awesome interview. But first, let's say hello to our pal, Daniela Bolelli. Hello, 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 hello. I hope you guys are doing well. Let's start cranking down on... What shall we start with today? Well, I think the most exciting one is our brand new sponsor, our friends at Ting. Oh, yeah. They decided to give us a try, which is sweet. You know, they have. you may have heard of them from Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin, much love. We love you. You're so cool. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, yes, let's talk about Ting. I think it's very simple. I'm glad to, I'm glad to preach about it. I just got my first full family, got my whole family switched over to Ting, and my Verizon bill was hovering around $300 a month. My Ting bill, $131. The magic is you're only paying for the service. You can't be a fool anymore and go to Verizon or one of these big companies and think, hey, this $600 phone doesn't cost me anything. Indeed, it costs you something, and they tie you up to two years of your life. The folks at Ting are not that way. You bring your device. You hook it onto their system. They're using Sprint phones right now, but in the next few weeks, they're going to be switched over to a much larger system that will accept pretty much any phone uh, made in the last two years. And we'll detail that further in a couple weeks when that gets closer. But I cannot tell you... How great Ting has been! Um, if you if you use, it's kind of set on levels. When you use your first thousand minutes, that's like a medium level. Then it clicks over to the next one, and it adds six bucks to your to your bill. It's all very reasonable. You can even take your old phone bill, put it into their system, and they'll show you if they'll save you money or not. So they're very straightforward. They're quite a bunch of awesome folks right there. And uh, they also have phones available. You know, you can get a, a used one or a refurbished one through their Glide company. But for our listeners, tau.ting.com, which sounds like, like a, a, a forward from the Chinese yeah. national team. But uh, sign it up. Get yourself some awesome phone service. It's going to make you happy to not be beholden to one of the behemoths. And you're just going to feel so much prouder when your mama sees that your phone bill has been cut in half. For real. Not these stunt 
half things right. and there's a thousand things added to it. I don't know. I could go on. I couldn't be more excited that they've asked us to, uh, you know, pitch them. And the big moment in a couple weeks when the big network opens up, we'll be all over that. But for now, please give them a shout. Once again, DAO.ting.com. You actually had all the list of the good reasons. I'm just a Dan Carlin devotee. So if Dan said the thing is awesome, I mindlessly repeat. Thing is awesome because... Dan is never wrong. That's my policy. Well, how do you think I called him in the first place? But, no, I know. Exactly. It's from the well, epic Dan, Dan Carlin. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yes, check it out. The link is in the episode notes. So, if you want to check out Ting and you are puzzled by a rich pronunciation of what happened, is Dao Ting? What the hell is he talking about? Just check out the episode notes and you will have the direct link where to sign up and everything else. Which brings us to our other new friends. With all this money you saved, you're going to be able to afford a few bottles of wine. Indeed. Well, why to go to all the trouble of carting that all heavy stuff into your car and then have to drag it all the way home? Check out our new other friends, clubw.com forward slash Taoist, and that will set you up with your own membership into the awesome Club W Wine Extravaganza Super Party Collection. I don't even know what to call it. I I don't care to call it. I just care to drink it, That's and it's good. Trick. Well, what's cool is you, when you sign up, there's a there's a 45-second survey for you to fill out of flavors you prefer. Do you like berries? Do you like fruity? Do you like the yeah. tobaccos? And they'll give you a flavor profile, and you click the ones you like, and before you know it, three bottles of wine sitting ready at your house for better to make the white cool and the red warm. And so far, so good. All three were really damn good. Yeah. On that note, so again, episode notes, like everything else, check in the episode notes. And in the episode notes, of course, you'll find the links to our regular sponsors who have been with us for a long time. That's Usara with all the possible hemp gear you can find. It's uh, You could pick a bunch of nasty things that screw up the environment or pick up stuff made of hemp, which is as good as it gets. And it seems like that um, large backpack is the most ultimate thing to carry a computer and some yeah. clothes on an airplane and still be carry-on. It's a fantastic size. You know, you still got to pull a computer out, but fantastic stuff. Just did some traveling and that hemp gear, it'll take care of you in the airplane. Absolutely, with micro ninjas and all. Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. There's, uh, um, I heard that there's a ton of new products that I haven't gotten to try. I shall. We have actually recorded two episodes. So you may hear the same thing happen in two weeks. And it's like, Daniele, what the hell? Why didn't you try it in the last two weeks? Well, because I recorded them actually back to back. So it's uh, in the last seven minutes that I haven't tried. But I shall probably by the next time. So yeah, check out Onnit.com. There's the usual gamut of products from AlphaBrain being the sort of flagship product of Onnit, bunch of other supplements, all the kind of strength training, sporting equipment, DVDs about working out, the special foods. There's the whole range of products that Onnit carries. Check it out. And of course, the great shirt design, shirt design t-shirts, which it's not just t-shirts, actually. There's a lot more to that. His uh, offerings with the wildest artwork on the planet shows up, you know, new designs are produced constantly. So even if you think you know your short design stuff, check it out from time to time. There's always new stuff. And speaking of new designs, the the Nietzsche t-shirt pre-order probably got a couple more weeks on it, but you're going to want to get to it. It's awesome. It's our pal Nietzsche with his surfboard and his bottle of wine and his Drunken Taoist t-shirt and his awesome Datsu Sarah pants. It's 
probably the coolest one yet. Yeah, I mean, even though if I might still be upset about the final decision on the back of the T-shirt, but yeah, you, I can live with it. Yeah, that's a great quote too. Yeah, you want? I know, I know. We had. Uh, what can you do? You can't win them all. Which one did you like? Uh, I I won't believe in a god that won't dance. Yeah, that's a great one. That is a great one. I love that one. I love all of them. No, they're all, hard, they're uh, all great. It was you know, it was a close call on some of them. Hey, sometimes you don't win. It's fine. Yeah. We're all winners because the new quote's awesome too. So no, and um, yeah, so check it out. Is our gonna be our third T-shirt after the original logo, which we still have in stock if you want. After the Dionysian parade, which is awesome on its own. Uh, we took one detail from the Dionysian Parade, focusing on Nietzsche carrying his surfboard with carrying a bottle of wine and the whole thing. He's a happy Nietzsche, which to me is the image of what uh, a better humanity looks like with Friedrich Nietzsche's depth, but at the same time a happy Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche that can have a drink and go out surfing rather than stressing in the end Germany at the end of the 1800s. So that's to me is the image of a better world that's the image of a better world right there speaking of a better world surfing nietzsche our guest today incredible cat you're gonna yep. dig this a lot he's um he's a doctor but he doesn't talk like a doctor quite so much indeed you're gonna hear very very different kind of thing in regard to healing healthcare, approaches about the body and everything else so without further ado let's get rolling Okay guys, ready to roll. So today we are going to be talking about something that I've personally been dealing with quite a bit on a personal level and I think I've thrown a few hints about it here and there and uh, regardless of my own personal thing is a super fascinating topic in its own right if nothing else for intellectual curiosity and intellectual reasons. Today with us, Dr. David Schachter. Welcome to the Drunken Taoist. Good to be here. So let's roll. I'll please correct me if I get the legend wrong regarding uh, Dr. John Sarno, but the story I've heard, the story that by now again may be growing to proportions that are beyond, the story I've heard is that Howard Stern, of all people, you know, a few guys, uh, I would imagine most of you guys are familiar with Howard Stern. If not, Google him. That's always good. <laughs> Howard Stern was uh, in really bad shape, where his back was really messed up. He was in tremendous pain. They suggested that he would have to do some very serious surgery that even if he went well, it would still be... Uh, affect his life in pretty dramatic fashion for years to come he was right to the point of going for it when he somebody gave him a book by dr john sarno howard stern went through the book read it by the time he closed the cover he no longer needed surgery and his back was fine am i stretching it or is it you may be condensing it a little right bit. <laughs> you know as i understand uh, howard stern went to see dr sarno at the uh -huh. rusk institute at nyu in new york and here's the great contrast howard stern maybe six foot five wild hair uh, wild clothes john sarno maybe five foot six bow tie uh, white jacket white white shirt 
Um, and, and Howard Stern said that the things that Sarno said to him were more believable because they didn't come from a man with a turban, let's say, which would have been a classic you know, guru or right. thinker or Eastern philosopher or something. But it came from a very conventional, conservative-looking man. Right. And so he was able to say, this, I could listen to this. This makes more sense to me. And, of course, the book helped him as well. And he felt that Sarno cured him not only of back pain but of obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, although if you listen to Howard's turn, I'm not sure that was a complete success. Right. You're like, <laughs> uh, halfway there. That's better than before. Yeah, the OCD issue is always... What it would be otherwise? That's yeah. always the question. Yeah. It's not just where you're at, but it what it could have been. But so do tell us. I mean, this is the our stern story is the hook because it's fun, it's weird, it catches your attention. But clearly, you know, it raises the question of okay, so what's the magic secret? What happened there? How does talking with a doctor and reading his book? lead to somebody being healed of physical problems. I mean, it seems like, come on, are we talking miracles here? How does that happen? Please do tell. All right, well, I, I'm not going to let it all out at once because otherwise we won't, have yeah, a, I know, it's, we won't have a full broadcast right. to talk about. So we'll let out the magic potion a little bit at a time. Uh, one of the questions I ask, I see a lot of patients with chronic pain. Some of them have seen the all-star list of doctors in Los Angeles, all the top specialists in spine or back or pain or whatever. And they haven't gotten better. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the ones that have gotten better haven't come to see me. So these are the ones that haven't gotten better. What is it that we're doing differently? I say that one of the things we're doing differently is I'm asking a different set of questions. Mm -hmm. So I'm not claiming to be any smarter than this all-star list of doctors. But I'm asking a different set of questions. I, patients will say to me, you know, we never asked me that. And I've been to 20 doctors. What, what is it that we're starting with? Well, we're starting by asking them things like, what's going on in your life? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you feeling about your job? How are things going in your relationship? What are you upset about? Um, when the pain started, what were you stressed about at that time? So we're asking a different set of questions. We're changing the parameters of the equation, so to speak, from biomechanics, which is certainly an important part of human life and existence and pain, but only one part, to a broader scope of biopsychosocial, or if you will, neurobiological. So we're looking at the brain the emotions and the body as a unified whole and we're beginning to obtain information from the patient in our interview that is different than from what other doctors have found. Okay, so that's the first process, first start of the thing. If I'm able to learn more about the patient, I'm able to understand why it is that their pain is stuck in their nervous system, why mm -hmm. it hasn't gone away as most people would have gone away by then. And then the process is, of course, to, to educate that patient who I make this diagnosis of that we'll talk about in, not, in the knowledge of what this condition is about, like Howard Stern learned it from John Sarno and from his book. And when you've got a new way of looking at the thing, you're no longer so worried and frightened that you're never going to get better. People with illness and with pain worry and think about it all the time. That's of an, course. You could call that obsessive compulsive disorder, but that's a normal reaction yeah. to... And when they have a different belief, which is that the pain, while very real, is actually benign, meaning harmless, and caused more by what's going on in the brain, the mind, the nervous system, the emotions, than it is by what's going on in the back or the neck, it changes the whole perception of that individual and allows them to begin the process of healing. So this is a little bit, we'll talk more. We'll sure. 
delve into it. No, but that's right there is very interesting because you're basically talking about a model of health and a model of healing that makes the connection that addresses the human being as a whole as opposed to uh, everybody specializing in uh, the thumb. What do you do about fixing the thumb? You're looking at a full human being and that basically addressing the roles that emotions play in somebody's health and the fact that they are not separate from the physical that the physical and the emotional and the mental go hand in hand and one has an impact on the other so the um, we mentioned john sarno because the particular approach to this uh, more holistic view of the body and health that you are following is uh, directly inspired by this man john, john sarno can you tell us a little bit about him and how you fit into this picture and okay well i i met john sarno when i was a medical student mm -hmm. and it was about 30 years ago at nyu i was in my very early 20s and i was having knee pain mm -hmm. and uh knee pain was stopping me from playing basketball and running which were my two great stress releases from medical school which is very stressful especially when you you start out that first year and you have to memorize anatomy oh, and yeah. all of this sort of thing so the knee pain doesn't get better I see the usual physicians at NYU. I even seen an orthopedist who took care of the New York Yankees. They can't fix me. I'm going to the library. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with my knee, my feet. I mean, maybe my legs are crooked. You know, all of these different things that could possibly explain it, although I was only a first-year medical student. And I walk into John Sarno's office one day, and I said to him, Dr. Sarno, I heard you lecture to us in anatomy. I know you know a lot about physical medicine. He's a physical rehab doctor at that time. Can you recommend some high-tech physical therapy for me? So he says, well, what's, what's wrong with you? So I tell him two or three minutes the story. He, he pauses, he stops, he looks at me. I still remember this because <laughs> this changed my career. Of course. And he says, you know, 95% of this chronic pain stuff is psychosomatic. We'll come back mm -hmm. to that term in a minute. What do you think of that, Dave? And I go, well, that wasn't what I was expecting to hear here today, Dr. Sarno. Well, I understand you could be skeptical, but... That's been my experience. Why don't you come to a seminar I'm giving next week? I give it weekly for patients who I diagnose with this condition. And if you happen to think it applies to you, I'd be glad to examine you in the office and try to confirm the diagnosis. So I'm left with this surprise little thrust here. Psychosomatic, by the way, means mind, body, or, psych or brain, body connected. It doesn't mean imaginary sure. or anything like that. Sometimes it's misunderstood. But anyway, um, so the next week I go to a seminar on a Monday evening at this uh, Rusk Institute, nice auditorium, maybe 30, 40 people there. I noticed they're very well-dressed. They're Upper East Side, Upper West Side Manhattan people. I'm this young 21-year-old, 22-year-old medical student in corduroys and, uh, and a shirt, and they're like businessmen and women mm -hmm. and all this stuff. So he, he presents his whole thing with slides. There was no PowerPoint then. He lays out his scheme of how pain originates in the emotions and the uh, certain parts of the brain, what he called the limbic system, the hypothalamus, and how personality and unconscious feelings can cause this thing. And it made a lot of sense to me because I was a bit of a worrier. I was going through the stress of medical school. So I listened to the seminar. It was about an hour and a half long. People are asking questions. They seem very involved and interested. And they seem like normal people. They were not cuckoo. <laughs> That's and always reassuring. Yeah, right? There weren't 30 Howard Sterns there either. It was yeah. just you know ordinary people in Manhattan that live, live in the uh, east and west side. Mm -hmm. So I go home after this lecture. I sit down in my one one little small bedroom apartment that I had as a medical student. I can't even tell you how small it was. And I sit down, I go, this really makes sense. And I felt like a weight 
lifting off of me, all this worry and fear and anxiety, this makes this this really makes sense. I can get better. Mm-hmm. I had hope, mm-hmm. which I was losing at this point. And over the next week or two, in addition to setting up an appointment to get examined by him and confirming the diagnosis that he called TMS or tension myositis or tension myoneural syndrome, in addition to confirming that, I started walking more, started jogging a little bit, shoot some baskets. Before I know it, the pain is pretty gone in a few weeks. I didn't have to do any extensive programs and things. I just had to understand at that point in my life, it was a little simpler time in my life than it is now, that stress, worry, overly focused on it, leads you to pain that doesn't go away. Learning about it, understanding what the cause was, and forcing yourself to get active again breaks that whole negative pattern. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of my education in this condition. Because I guess that's one of the things that, as you pointed out, when people are told, uh, basically, it's in your head, uh, feel like, what do you mean it's in my head? It hurts. It's real. It's f-. And, you know, whether it's back pain, whether it is... Uh, the symptoms, by the way, you know, the back pain is the most famous mm-hmm. of these, but there are quite a few others. And actually, before we even go on, can you mention what are some of the other things that are typical that fit within the TMS? I would say uh, that low back pain is probably the most common that I see. Uh, neck pain is mm-hmm. not uncommon. Uh, Elbow-related pain, like tennis elbow and stuff. Plantar fasciitis, which is certain types of soft tissue. Foot pain is common. Tension headaches. TMJ, which is the jaw pain that sometimes mm-hmm. people get at the corner of their jaw, is not uncommon. People think it's an overuse thing, but they just get these kind of arm pain syndromes that nobody can explain. Uh, maybe they blame it on a computer, but it can also be stress-related. So it's a lot of different parts of the body. Would you include the tingling or hands going a little numb, that kind of thing? Sometimes, yeah. sometimes tingling and numbness can be associated with the syndrome. Pain is probably the number one thing. Sure. But, you know, there's gastrointestinal symptoms that people can get, acid reflux, um, irritable bowel syndrome that also have a correlation with this. So it's a condition that originates in the brain, mind, the nervous system, but shoots out to different parts of the body, picks different parts of the body for different reasons. We can speculate or discuss that later. And the treatment approach is actually very similar regardless of what part of the body it is if you identify it as as this syndrome. Mm Mm-hmm. So once you're able to make the diagnosis, and we'll get into how you do that, the idea is don't focus so much on that particular symptom because it's not it, it's what's behind it that's causing it. And I guess that's part of what reading John Sarno's book, listening to you, it seems like it's a hard thing to deal with for a lot of people that have a hard time intellectually um, acknowledging the diagnosis because we have been educated with the system that physical problem as a physical solution it's all purely you know the body's a machine they're just right. uh, if it's broken that part of the machine we need to man- mechanically to fix it and take care of it to be told that there's an emotional component throws a lot of people off which personally i find strange because i would be like are you kidding me i would want to yes Tell me that it's emotional because that it's you can deal with it. It's like you can, uh, as you put it, it gives you hope. It makes you feel like there's something that can be done about it. Whereas some of the structural ones, well, in some cases you can, in some cases you can't. But there's uh, why do you think people are so um, 
troubled by uh, the idea that there can be an emotional component to the very real symptoms that they feel. Because the symptoms, there's no joke about it. They are ex- as real as it gets. Well, one thing you mentioned was this idea that if I'm acknowledging that it's emotional, therefore I'm saying it's in my head and it's not real. There's this, there's right. this dichotomy or this split or this break between emotional and reality. They're actually all part of the human experience, yeah. the human nervous system, the brain, etc., one is not imaginary and one is not real. They're all mm-hmm. real, but that's not the way we're kind of taught or brought up or educated. Um, there's also resistance to the idea of looking at things that are difficult to look at. Mm-hmm. We, we speculate that the syndrome develops to some degree because although pain is a horrible thing to deal with, and maybe in some ways it's easier to deal with than facing some difficult truths about yourself or dealing with some traumas from childhood or from... Uh, you know, relationship breakup, uh, financial stresses, other things that really can weigh on us. Uh, sometimes people are just not ready. There have been people who have heard about this from a friend or have been given one of Sarno's books or now perhaps will get one of my books. And they look at it and they go, oh, very interesting. I don't think this applies to me. They put it on the bookshelf. Then I hear from them six months or a year later that, I don't know, for some reason they just decided to pull the book off the bookshelf the previous weekend, sat down, my God, it, it made total sense to them. They, they read the book cover to cover and they call my office Monday morning desperate to get an appointment right. when they had no interest six months before. So sometimes you have to be at a point of readiness. Mm-hmm. Desperation is one of the things that leads you to readiness. Unfortunately, some of the people who've been through many, many treatments and it hasn't helped them, the typical doctor goes, I don't want to treat that person because nothing's worked. Yep. I think, hey, this is great. They've tried all the conventional things. If any of those things would have worked, great they would have been fine since it didn't work that's somebody i can help of course so it's the opposite it's kind of a strange thing the person who hasn't been helped by anything i feel i have a higher chance of success sometimes than someone who hasn't tried a lot of things they're not as desperate how much trouble are we in right now with the pushing of the pharmaceuticals the millions of oxycontin that are out there i mean they try that and they're numb so how do they ever know they're ever any better that's a good question you know i think that you, you talk about opioids and stuff right now. I think this is one of the things that might allow this approach to get more well-known and more accepted by the medical profession because there's such a push now to cut down on the overprescribing of, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, to mention one medication, oxycodone, oxycontin, or any of the opiates. I think now that medical groups and HMOs and other institutions may be more open to the idea of, hey, let's try some mind-body therapy, or they call it cognitive behavioral approaches, because... The pills are killing people. Right. People are overdosing on them, getting into trouble with it, addictions, and all of this sort of thing. So It's funny, the guy that we learned about Dr. Sarno from, or at least I did, um, runs a flotation lab, these uh, sensory uh-huh. deprivation places. Yeah. Yep. And he's, you know, a lot of them are hippies trying to you know, get in touch with their inner being. But a lot of folks, just to have all the weight distributed equally for the first time in their life, release so much pain... He said between the, you know, getting your mind right and, and getting people in these flotation tanks, it's changing lives. Well, flotation tanks may work on two levels. It releases the physical tension in your body, but it may also, as you say, clear your mind and allow you to look at things in, in a different way. So you may get double benefit from that type of experience. Uh, people get that type of benefit from sometimes from meditation or yoga right. or other things that yeah. don't require jumping in the water, which I'm not <laughs> saying is not a good thing, sure. but not when, not everybody has access to it right away. And um, you know, again, it's it's being open to it, but many people are resistant. I understand that. 
I see people who have not come to me specifically looking for an alternative who have come to me just as a, you know, maybe the first level care. Right. And sometimes I'll say, you know, this sounds like this could be stress related. Da, 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 da. And they go, well, you know, I don't know. I, I want to do physical therapy first. Mm-hmm. And this and that. Fine. You know, I guess you're not. Sure. That's fine. But if I can stay in touch with them, sometimes they, they move in a different direction. Of course. And I guess that's the thing that's tricky because the um, sometimes the spots on which the TMS may work mm. are, in some cases, there's a very real element there. Maybe you do mm. have the disc that's out in one particular spot and that's where it hurts. But one of the things that's funny sometimes that people forget is that if you do, if you look at most people's spines, a lot of people have discs that are messed up. Why is it that you are in crazy pain and the next guy goes around his days, does everything fine and never feel it? So yes, there's something structurally wrong with both of you guys, but why is it that you feel it and he doesn't? And on top of that, why do you feel it now instead of three months ago? Because your MRI probably looked exactly the same three months ago. Exactly. Why are you feeling it now? Well, because recently, you know, you went through a breakup or right. you you had uh, uh, lost a, a loved one or something else that was traumatic in your mm-hmm. life that you had, or you're dealing with job issues, uh, diff- uh, difficult supervisor. That's why it may have happened now. So you're different from the other person. Instead of treating every pathology the same, we treat every person individually. We individualize treatment based on understanding the person. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, that makes a lot more sense because we're all unique. Yeah, that's as, uh, you know, when you say it, it's like, of course, it makes perfect sense. The thing that's bizarre is not what you're saying. The thing that's bizarre is that what you're saying seems revolutionary and unique when you consider what the state of medicine is for the most part. What you're saying is, you know, uh, it is, uh, there's hot water and there's bread, you know, basics, essential things that, and yet it's like, whoa, you treat people individually what a crazy concept that is it's, you, yeah. you ask them about their lives you don't just say here are some pills go off on your way it is uh, it is a really different way of looking at well, it can be world. a very satisfying way of practicing although it's clearly not for everyone i was at sure. uh, a conference up in seattle with a couple of doctors who who do this kind of work and we spoke at a couple of hospitals and one of the doctors said he feels much more satisfied with getting to talk to people and getting to know people than before the way he used to practice before. But it seems that many physicians are either not that inclined mm-hmm. or the lack of training in this approach means that they don't, they don't find it comfortable to ask the questions and know how to respond to them, et cetera. You do what you're comfortable with. You do what yep. you're trained with. So you know, there's different reasons why the medical profession hasn't moved more in this direction yet. People also comment that everybody, everything's rush, rush now because of yep. financial pressures and insurance and all that. It takes a little bit more time to do this and ask about questions. We try to give people a longer visit than they would if they were just coming in with a sprained ankle from baseball that weekend because you have to ask different kind of questions. It's, it's rough. But it doesn't make sense also to apply the same type of approach to somebody with chronic pain as somebody with acute pain because they're really a different kind of condition. Right, and absolutely. Maybe we'll talk about that some more later. And one thing that I noticed reading, uh, when I was reading, what's the one I read? I read The Divided Mind mm-hmm. by John Sarno. Um, he was breaking down uh, also that not only there are traumatic events in people's lives that tend to lead toward uh, pushing you in this direction, but there's also personality types. Mm-hmm. Some people who are built in a way that's much more um, prone to go for, to end up with some kind of TMS at some point down the road. And I remember as I was reading the book, I was like, 
he's sarno looking over my back here is like <laughs> what's going on because i was like yep check 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 i had every single thing there on the list i'm like okay i got it and then he was bringing up physically he was bringing up some of the exactly the issues that i was dealing the, with let's talk about so, the personality because it's 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 interesting to people i mean Sarno started to use various personality traits that he noticed in patients with this con- with chronic pain and this TMS condition. I call it the type T mm-hmm. personality. There used to be a type A and a type B, which were related to heart disease or being mellow or whatever. Type T. So it's a personality that creates a lot of tension. That's what the T is for. So, we're, so for those of you listening and for those of you in the room today, uh, perfectionism, you know, constantly worrying about you know, missing that, that last little drop, uh, being hard on yourself, excessively so sometimes the patient doesn't realize it but it's the spouse that notices or their friend <laughs> or co-worker um, highly responsible we all want to work with responsible people but you take a lot if you take all the responsibility of the world in yourself it creates a lot of tension and stress yeah goodism someone who's very uh, aware and and sensitive to uh, the, the things that are bad in the world or bad in the community and and uh, they're always trying to fix everything Again, I like those people. Those are people helping the world, but it creates a lot of tension right. internally. So these are some of the major personality characteristics. You don't have to have all of them, but if you have a few of them, uh, it, it definitely adds to this. Now, we, we, we're not talking about treatment yet, but I'll just mention sure. briefly, you don't have to change all these things about yourself. It's more about being aware and just toning it down a little bit. But personality characteristics are one of the things that we're looking for and that make each person unique. It doesn't take that long to figure it out. You have to ask those questions, though, mm-hmm. to know about the person. Absolutely. And it's interesting right there that just the way you are, before we're even talking about life experience, just the, the way you're built, essentially, what makes you you can make you more or less prone, which I guess it makes sense because is psychologically the way people are built. Some people, as you say, are going to be more mellow. Some people are going to be extra driven. Some people, mm-hmm. all of those things can be good or bad, depending on how imbalanced you are. You know, mellow, good. Yeah. Within certain measures, if mellow means get nothing done, not so good. Driven, that's great. If you are a manic freak who's staying up at 3 a.m. every night going, how can I solve this? Driven is not, so, you know, it's like, I guess it's a matter of balance, but it's interesting how some of these things can uh, lead to this. Now, having said that, so somebody walk into your office, how, I guess you sort of already halfway answered this question regarding how you diagnose, because you're basically interviewing them, right? You're asking questions and trying to figure out uh, first about what's going on in their life, the stuff about their personality. Anything else that you need to finalize your diagnosis? Well, we're, we're trained in medicine to take a history, a physical, review tests, and, 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 and physical is doing an examination, mm-hmm. and then try to make a diagnosis. So the history is finding out the story of the patient and how, and how their pain began and, and, and how it's gone up and down over the years, what makes it better, what makes it worse, et cetera. But the difference is that our narrative or my narrative, the doctors who do this work's narrative, tends to be a little more textured and richer mm-hmm. because we're not just looking at, oh, did you fall? Did you mm-hmm. lift something too heavy, et cetera? These mechanical things, we are looking at those factors, but we're also looking at personality things, life events, changes in life, pressures that you feel. So I think it's a deeper, more textured type of narrative that we take. Then um, the additional questions that I mentioned asking about personality type, I ask about childhood. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff we, co- we carry over from childhood affects us the rest of our lives, especially if we don't get a chance to process it or deal with it or whatever. So we ask a little bit about childhood. We ask about um, other stress-related illnesses. Sometimes people with back pain in their 40s 
remember when you asked them that they had kind of irritable bowel, sort of sensitive stomach in their 20s, they had tension headaches in their 30s, never made the association. Boom, the 40s, they had back pain. Well, it is all related. It's just coming out in different parts of your body, different ways at different times in your life. Maybe as a kid, you had uh, you know, an anxious, uh, an anxious gut or mm-hmm. other symptoms in your teenage years or even earlier. Some you know, 10-year-olds get headaches and, and they get too much pressure or stress sometimes. Um, so those are all factors. And when I examine the patient, I'm doing the standard medical or orthopedic exam relevant to their symptoms. But I'm also looking beyond that to some tender points that we find on the, the back and the lower back, et cetera, uh, discussed in my book in more detail that are relevant to this condition. But I want to do a thorough exam because part of diagnosing this condition is excluding that it is a structural problem. Mm -hmm. Although it's very rare, I've picked up a tumor or two in the last 20 years of doing this work. And I've picked up people who have severe arthritic hips and other things that may need to be dealt with in a more structural fashion, even though they wished or hoped that it could be dealt with in purely a mind-body fashion. So you have to exclude structural, you have to categorize the patient correctly. And then I do review x-rays and MRI images. Almost everybody's had one, it seems. If they haven't, then I have to order it. Then, of course, we do that. When I've got all of that information together, I can really make a diagnosis. So my diagnosis might be, your problem is TMS. Purely, 100%. That's what it is. My my diagnosis might be, you have a structural issue. Let's deal with it that in a a medication or an injection Mm -hmm. or physical therapy way, or, and this is the one that's the most challenging, well, I'll mention it, you might have a combination. Right. You might have a structural issue, but you've created kind of an amplification on that that we might call the TMS amplification, and they're connected. You know what? It might be easier to work on the mind-body stuff first, see how much goes away. Mm-hmm. Maybe 85 90% of it go away, you won't even care about the remaining 10%, and if it doesn't, we can move back to the structural, or we could try dealing with both at the same time. But the, the most exciting cures I have and the most dramatic results I get are when I can say, you know what? This unfortunately was never diagnosed correctly. It is TMS. That's what it is. Right. Because then people can really, hopefully, if they're able to, accept the diagnosis, believe in it strongly, and move forward as I did 30 years ago with my knee and, and, and move beyond that. So that's how I make a diagnosis briefly enough, and it's described in more detail in, in, in other things I've written. What happens at that point? So let's say that it is not a purely structural or purely, there's either at least a part of it that's TMS or it's 100% TMS. Let's say it's 100% for simplicity's sake. Um, What do you do after that point? So you tell them, let's say they believe it or like, it makes sense, I see it. What happens at that point? Well, certainly I need to answer answer their questions because people usually have questions when when this diagnosis is made and and how it relates or, you know, well, what about when I get this pain or what about when it hurts this way? So I answer a number of their questions and then I kind of outline what I call the 12 stages of healing because what I've learned is that people who get better from this go through a number of this -hmm. this kind of pattern of healing. Um, To briefly go through a few of them and uh, you can interrupt at any point. We can go into more detail on some that might be interesting. Typically, people realize that existing approaches to their problem are not working or are temporary. Mm-hmm. Whatever they've done, a massage, physical therapy, whatever, chiropractic, it helped, but it, it just didn't solve the problem. It was temporary. Then they become open to a new way of looking at this, a new diagnosis, and they're seeking something or they're open to it when I discuss it or when they've read something. And they're evaluating it with an open mind, not rigid. So I tell them the next thing they have to do is intellectually make a list of reasons, and I do that with them, why this is TMS. And we look at the reasons. 
personality characteristics, mm -hmm. tender points on exam, normal neurological findings, you know, unimpressive MRI. We kind of make a list of the positives. And if there's anything that seems to go against this, we make a list of those. Usually there aren't too many. And then the preponderance of the evidence intellectually, boom, it's TMS. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that helps you. But you know, that's only intellectually. We're also sure. an emotional being. So I try to work on helping them to accept the diagnosis emotionally. I, and on the emotional side, I try to help them to accept the diagnosis. And that may involve some more reading materials, listening to audio uh, programs, DVDs, writing. It, that takes longer. It always mm -hmm. takes longer to accept something in your gut than to maybe make a, a quick intellectual decision. I explained to them that doubt can be part of this diagnosis. People with the condition often doubt they have it and how to work through that doubt. Um, we discussed being more physically active, which is an important part of reassuring yourself that your body's okay. So you're basically telling people to start engaging start. again in activities that they would do, like if they were healed and okay, but Me clearly, you know, within measure, of course. Within measure. I mean, many of the people have been very inactive for a period of time. I see some right. people who, when they bend over, they, they're stiff as a robot and they move very robotically, um, but it's because of fear. Right. And once they begin to accept the diagnosis, they can begin to be more active. They don't have to immediately jump back to Olympic level running or anything. <laughs> right. Get, getting more active is important. One of the key things we talk about is this concept that Sarno first originated, and I think I'm trying to update it, thinking psychologically, not physically or not structurally. Mm -hmm. So what I tell them is that you're in a loop. You're caught in a spin cycle. You've got this broadband thickened neural pathway where the brain and the pain are just focused on each other. Wish I could, visually I could show you that, but it's a drawing that I kind of draw a sketch in the office, brain and pain, brain and pain, kind of just feeding back and forth like a highway. How do you break that? You start noticing the pain, which of course doesn't go away the first minute, but you talk to it. You just give it a five or 10 word affirmation. Hey, that's the pain that I can handle, or the pain's going away. I'm understanding how it comes from my fear. And you, you come up with this little mantra yourself. Each person does it. And when they feel the pain, they do this thing. I call that the block. Then I do the shift. The shift is thinking about something else, but something positive. Maybe work, maybe a loved one, maybe a vacation, maybe a hobby. And then there's the processing, the block, the shift, and the process. The processing is doing some kind of emotional release every day, like a journaling thing that I like people to do, writing about their feelings and stuff. So we're getting them out of the focus on the body and into the focus on changing the neural pathways through thinking differently. Mm -hmm. So what's so different about this approach is it's, you know, you say mind over matter, you know, you could say uh, the brain heals itself, but really what we're doing is we're using the tremendous power of cognition, of thought, directing it in a positive way <clears throat> and changing the broken record, if you can picture the old 45s that used to right. spin around when the needle got stuck, for those of you old enough to remember that or have seen pictures yep. of movies of it. Um, we're breaking that, and then people seem to start dramatically getting better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which sound like magic when you're explaining like that. At the same time, it's what happens. When I've seen it happen 2,500 exactly. times over the last 20 years, I realize it's not magic. Right. When I describe it sometimes or think about it, it seems magical, of course, but it's really scientifically based. And what, what's interesting is that Sarno's theories, which now date back 35 years, were based on his empirical or observation of people in his clinic mm -hmm. at the Rusk Institute in New York and rehabilitation and how they responded differently if he educated them certain ways, if he asked them about their feelings, 
different personality types. This was his Isaac Newton or Einstein moment of observation and of creating a brand new way of doing things just from not the scientific method, like a lab test kind of thing, but just from thought and observation. But what's happened over the last, especially 15, 20 years, is that neuroscience is catching up, I think, to what Sarno came up with 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. We're learning more about the emotional centers of the brain. We're learning about how thought affects different things. We're learning where pain is located in acute pain in the brain and where it's located somewhere else in chronic pain in the brain. So I feel like, and I'm excited about, and this is one of the reasons I wrote Think Away Your Pain uh, this past year, was that we now have ways to scientifically explain and provide evidence for a theory that many people say, how did he come up with that? You know, wh- how is that based in science? Sure. So it seems like magic only because it works so incredibly effectively and because we don't often explore the tremendous power of our brains to change our physical reality. Yeah, because I mean, that's one of the things that even in the more conventional medical approach there is today still when people would say oh and such and such is just the placebo effect and it's like what are you saying exactly you know when you're talking about the fact that if you believe something it can make a tremendous difference in how your body will respond that's not something to be dismissed on the side like oh by the way yeah just placebo that's crazy in terms of our understanding of how the body and the mind do work together that that's a wonderful it's a wonderful uh, analogy and, and point that you brought up the placebo effect is basically accessing the underlying healing ability of the body mm-hmm. when you give somebody a pill and 40 percent of the people get better and you give them a sugar pill and 27 percent of the people get better let's try to understand how we can get 27 percent of the people better without giving them a toxic chemical right that's really powerful stuff yep so, and you know, there was an interesting study done a few years ago. Some of it was done at UCLA in, in Los Angeles, which was you can do brain scans on people and predict which group of people is going to respond to a placebo for depression. Wow, that's interesting stuff, isn't it? That you could scan the brains, and there's a difference between those people who are going to respond to an antidepressant medication or not, but there's also a difference between who's going to respond to a placebo or not. That tells us that it's really in our different unique structures of the brain that we're slowly understanding, and we're, we're, we're each of us different. Very much. What Were they something that in layman term one could understand what the difference were from one set of people to another, or was it kind of like too complex, like something that somebody specializing in it can see mm. differences? But I think it's re- it was related to the blood flow in different parts of the frontal mm-hmm. cortex, which is the front part of the brain. Right. And that some people with more blood flow in in certain parts of this frontal cortex seem to be more, I wouldn't say susceptible because I think it's a good thing, more able to activate a healing response when exposed to a placebo. We don't yet know why that increased blood flow there makes you successful. If we did, we'd be probably publishing a Nobel Prize or something. But the doctors who did this research could definitively show that the people with this blood flow thing were the ones that later responded. So there's lots of interesting things happen happening with functional MRI brain imaging and other types of brain imaging that show differences that can then be correlated with how people respond to different types of treatments. And one thing that um, I guess is interesting, since we're saying there's a strong psychological and emotional aspect to it all, 
clearly there are people who deal with psychological and emotional issues and they know it from the get-go there's not even a physical manifestation but let's say they are you brought it up like they are depressed they are just uh, they know it it's clear and yet just purely awareness that that is it or even embracing that diagnosis doesn't quite get them there you know they are still they're still depressed it's like i know i am okay great i still am um so in that sense you definitely outlined some of the ways in which the tms process goes on how to once that understanding is there what you do from there i also take it that you kind of if i remember correctly also reading john sarno and everything there's a going hand in hand in some cases with more other types of therapy that deal with more psychological aspects of it all right we've covered the sort of initial stages of the 12 stages of healing we've covered um kind of the intellectual understanding and the knowledge mm -hmm. and the change in perspective for some people that's enough right for others they begin to uncover sometimes in the interview with me childhood issues childhood traumas abuse or when they start journaling, writing about their feelings every day, things come up that they realize, this is powerful stuff, I need some help with this. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, there are psychotherapists, both in Los Angeles and in other cities, and many of them now are doing work on Skype or on the internet, so that even if you're not in a city with one of these therapists, you can work with them potentially. But they've been trained and have learned techniques to work with the specific emotional issues that will help people get rid of the pain. Mm -hmm. So for some people, a home program, for, well, let me give you examples. Sarno for over many years told me, many, he had many book cures. People would read his book, write him a letter and say, you know, I, I cured my pain reading your book. Okay, right. So that's one level of cure. And now I've actually had a few of these emails and letters myself for, nice. for book cures. So I'm excited about that. Hopefully over the years, I'll get many more. But that's one level. Then some people just need to go to a, an MD once, like me, Mm -hmm. Be diagnosed, look, look them, I look them in the eye, tell them you have this TMS condition, it's benign, you, you read this, and that's all they need. Mm -hmm. Other people need several follow-up visits to kind of be guided and reassured and helped along this healing path that we help them to develop for themselves. It's very much an empowering the patient to get well rather than the doctor fixing them thing, but you, know, you need sometimes a guide for that. And other people, are, they're more complicated, there's more issues, a time in their life where there's stress or maybe it was just a chance that they have to kind of clean out the emotional vault they really benefit from good quality psychotherapy ideally with someone who's familiar with tms mm -hmm. therapy and if not then any kind of good therapist emotional therapist in your community that is willing to help you look at it and deal with uh, some of the fears angers upsets childhood stuff etc uh, and correlating that connecting that to the pain is what will help you to get better so there's different levels of what treatments of there are, just like there's different kinds of treatments for other conditions uh, uh, that are more in-depth or quicker. On that note, by the way, I met a few times with Jennifer Huggins that you mentioned. She's awesome. I like her a lot. Excellent. She's uh, very, very good. How does this work generationally? Are the older folks less likely to the, oh, just give me some pills so I can get out of here? And kind of younger generations are more into, you know, when did psychology kind of take hold? Like late 60s and... Maybe the baby boomers are more likely to believe, but some of your more uh, blue-haired folks are you know, just not going to buy it. It just it doesn't necessarily. It's, it, it varies from person to person. I think there's some people more open to it in all generations. I find that you know you get to a certain age, it's a little harder to change some things because you get a little more uh, just set in your ways uh, physically and psychologically. But 
I have 30-year-old people who resist the diagnosis and 65-year-old people who go, this is fantastic, and vice versa. So I don't think it's necessarily generation. I think our whole society is skewed toward physical treatments, pills, and conventional approaches or even alternative approaches, but that involve a lot of going back for more treatment, et cetera. But I don't know that I've really seen a generational difference. One thing I'll say about age, though, is interesting. Um, and this was asked to me at a recent talk I gave at a, at a bookstore, was you know, arthritis, for example, you get more every generation as you go along. A 40-year-old has more arthritis than an average 30-year-old, and a 70-year-old has more arthritis than a 50-year-old, and a 90-year-old has more arthritis than an 80-year-old. But chronic pain disability is more of a thing of the middle years of your life, in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it's interesting that if, it, if pain was purely due to wear and tear, you'd expect the 80s and 90-year-olds to be the people needing the most pain relief. Now, I'm not saying that being 80 or 90, I'm sure it aches. I'm sure you ache when you get up in the morning. And I've heard that from people in that generation. But they typically live their life. They do their thing and some of them swim and some of them aren't able to be active, whatever. But pain disability, people really suffering from agonizing, disabling pain, losing, missing jobs, having problems with relationships as a result of pain. Those people are using the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it doesn't go along with a purely structural model. Which is the time in life when typically the most pressure is on and there's more stress and everything else. So it's exactly. like, yeah, that's right there. If that's not exhibit A showing the, the psychological aspect of it all, I don't know what it's it is. part of the evidence, yeah. yeah. And one thing that's interesting about TMS that I found, um, and again, just when I was trying to, no, maybe it doesn't apply, I would turn the page and I would be like, oh, I guess it does. Because one of the things that happens is uh, the um, that Sarno talks about is the jumping around of the pain. So, you know, there's you have one specific issue, your lower back hurts. You address that for a while and uh, maybe you do some physical things that do relieve some pressure and suddenly your lower back doesn't hurt anymore but your gut is all messed up and you have irritable bowel syndrome and you fix that and suddenly your heart's pumping too fast all that it's like uh, what's going on there this, well, this makes a lot of sense once you understand tms but until you understand it you go why am i having all these conditions yeah exactly um a classic story with this was a friend of mine um many years ago, calls me up. He says, you know, my, my right knee's been bothering me lately. I know that you know a lot about knees. And I remember you had that thing with Sar that Sarno helped you with his knee. And I asked him a few questions and it was clear to me that he had not really had a knee injury. Mm -hmm. And he was a worrier. He's busy with his, whatever his law thing or whatever he was doing. So I said to him, why don't you think about this, this, and this in terms of this mind, this mind body model? Let's see how you feel over the next few days. He said, that seems reasonable. Nothing to lose, a couple days of time. So he calls me up the next day. He goes, Dave, I went to sleep with right knee pain. I woke up with left knee pain. So I knew it was, I knew it was in my brain, not in right. my knee. Yeah. So that we call that uh, symptom migration or symptom substitution. And it's true that this can be a trickster. You know, uh, it's kind of like this unconscious thing. It, it runs around until you, you really catch it and grab right. it and accept it fully and uh, believe it uh, strongly and maybe process the emotions. Someone at this... Uh, this bookstore uh, signing asked a good question. They said, isn't pain an alarm? I said, it's not an alarm, it's a signal. But we often misread the signal. Mm -hmm. So the pain keeps coming back until you address you know, the, the psychological thing maybe that you need to work on. So maybe somebody's really unhappy being a clerical person, they wanna be a musician. 
And yeah, they need to make a living, et cetera. But if they don't express their musical side, they may find that they continue to get pain mm -hmm. because that's the signal that they're getting. So sometimes you have to listen to your pain and listen to the signals your body is sending you indirectly as well as directly. And that's fascinating right there that the fact that sometimes our body will manifest pain or something to distract us from these other issues that we don't want to deal with. And I guess one of the things that seem to come up with TMS is uncomfortable emotions, things that you don't want to acknowledge maybe about yourself or things that you don't want to acknowledge about and just kind of keeping that at bay, you know, nothing like, oh, I have this emergency to worry about. I can't dedicate time to anything else. I can't focus on anything else. That's powerful in itself because I guess that was the part of the idea of or why reading a book would help somebody is because once it makes you aware that you're not dealing with certain things, just the fact of becoming aware of that process has a healing effect in itself. That, so I, oh, yeah, so that relates to the term distraction pain syndrome that I've sometimes used to refer to this condition because it can serve, as you point out, as a distraction from other issues that are a little more difficult or challenging to deal with in your life at that particular point. That makes perfect sense. I guess in that regard, I'll, I'll use me as a case study on this whole process. Because to me, it makes perfect sense. It, uh, I guess starting with the Sarno book when I read it, it helped me. I definitely got right off the bat 20% better immediately. And I was like, okay, there's something going on there. It, so it helped me intellectually. Talking with you helped. There's, I feel that, um, again, everybody will say it about themselves, but I feel that I'm fairly honest with my emotions I tend to you know if uh, I know where there's stuff that I'm not comfortable with I'll acknowledge that it exists I'll deal with so I feel that you know I intellectually completely got the diagnosis and it makes sense to me I have no doubt about that I do try to think and play with all those uncomfortable feelings at least to acknowledge that they are there and try to understand I guess so what you're saying is for somebody like me who's sort of halfway through the process, then it really is a matter of mostly of do your homework in the sense of, you know, put your mind there, think about it, go through the therapy. Those would be the steps, right? Is so that... Those would be the steps. And uh, we can be extremely smart and quick at a lot of things, but change that goes on at the neural or the brain level just takes a certain amount of time. Takes a while. And right. processing and, and you know, the interesting thing about being aware, a lot of the patients will say to me, oh, you know, uh, I'm a very aware person. I do yoga. Right. I've, been, I've been to therapy. I mean, after all, in L.A., almost everybody seems sure. to have been to therapy at some point or another. And yet I've been having this pain for right. years. And I go, well, that, first of all, that just proves you're human. Right. Secondly, it, it may prove that doing therapy in general, while a very good thing to learn about yourself or your issues or your personality mm -hmm. or relationships – if it's not really directed at getting rid of the pain, as TMS therapy should be, and as most general therapy, of course, would not be, it may not be as effective mm -hmm. for this condition as it would be for general awareness or acknowledgement or whatever. So it, it's a process. Some people, it goes pretty quickly. Other people need a little more time. You have to be patient with yourself, right. persistent, um, and... Uh, you know, everybody wants a timetable. How long is this going to take? Yeah, of course. Cause because it's like, it's like every TMS person is like, oh, I got, I, I can, let's get this all organized. I, I got it already. Can we yeah, move I've got on? It. Come yeah, on you know, three exactly. weeks. Wait, four, yeah. How long is it going to take, doctor? Four weeks? I go, listen, we're human beings. It's going to take as long as it's going right. to take. I'm not telling you to do this for years, but I'm. It, it may happen in weeks. It may take a few months. It depends on 
the person and 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 it depends on people busy and they don't have enough time to work on it or so there's 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 not always a shortcut lately i had one of those moments where i was just like where's a wall so i can slam my head in it repeatedly because i was like I got it. I feel it makes sense. All the like bunch of like digestive issues I was dealing with totally gone, 100% okay. And now every so often I decide to just I'll be resting, minding my business, and my heart start pumping at a million miles a minute. I check my heart. My heart is okay. EKG is fine. There's all the stuff. Is so it's like again another proof that structural is not it. It's not the damn heart. It's just TMS jumping from one system to another. And I'm like. Really? I'm still here? I'm still just doing the jumping around thing? Haven't I gotten it already? And he's like, well, your body's clearly telling you no. <laughs> so There's still a little bit more work to do. And, you know, Sarno's books, if any one of you have read them, one criticism is it's almost edited in such a way as to make it seem you do this thing and it's done and it's gone forever. Right. If you delve more into his books, and of course I've read all four of them, helped him edit his first one, um, he describes his own episodes of TMS in several of the books. And he, of course, he's the guru of this field. So what it tells us from his own experience is you can know a tremendous amount, but you're a human being and so at different times pressures build up and a physical symptom will occur. But having this knowledge that many physical symptoms, and of course, not all, get them sure. checked out if it's something that is new or alarming mm -hmm. to you. Uh, many physical symptoms, if you have the knowledge that these physical symptoms are often emotionally driven, you can start looking inside of yourself and say, oh yeah, I was upset at this or I'm upset at that. Gradually your symptoms will go away. So you're listening to your signals. You just have a new way of listening than you did before. How much do you think, emo I mean, you already said emotions explain a lot, don't explain everything. There are a few things that not only if somebody hits you with a baseball bat, well, that's not emotional, that's trauma, but also there are you know a bunch of other issues that may not be there are a very obvious reason for why that is but how much do you believe that emotion play a role in other conditions that we may not in any way shape or form connect with tms today like you know for example the insanely common and again maybe it's because we got rid of other diseases but the fact that we hear about cancer everywhere we turn you know everywhere there's like so and so at all sort of ages and everywhere like the prevalence of this kind of stuff happening how much do you believe that, to some degree at least, not to explain the entire thing, do you think there is an emotional component to some of this stuff? Okay, I'll, I'll make two, two sets of comments on sure. that. One is an interesting statistic, which is studies have been done suggesting that 60 to 70% of the patients that go to a primary care doctor are dealing with some kind of emotionally driven symptom. Mm -hmm. And I'll mention things like insomnia, not sleeping well, obviously back pain. Sure. Um, anxiety, depression, stress, fatigue, unknown fatigue, um, et cetera. So first of all, there's a tremendous amount of common things that people are seeing their doctor for that have a stress component. That, I, I didn't even mention blood pressure, by the way. That's another very common disease and, and, and may have a, for many people have a stress component. And that's, sorry to stop you there, yeah. that's an amazing statistic right there because you're saying that like 60 to 70% of people basically have something that's related to TMS in one way or another. Well, certainly related to, related to their emotions and their mood and their right. psychological status and how well that's being addressed in medicine, probably not that great. But this is, these are studies published in conventional medical right. journals. 
Um, here's an interesting study for you that relates to rheumatoid arthritis. Now, this is a common inflammatory condition. Mm-hmm. I'm not calling it straight TMS by any means. It's it, There's blood tests that can show it. You have uh, chemical inflammation, and it can cause, in severe cases, deformities of the joints and the fingers, et cetera. But they did a study a number of years ago where they took a group of people with rheumatoid arthritis, and they had them sit down three times a week for half an hour and write about the most traumatic thing, traumatic thing in their life over the last year or something in the last week that was bothering them, kind of like the journaling we do, but they did this was done by separate independent researchers. And they took another group of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and had them just write about what they did that day. I went to the grocery store. I went to the gym, whatever. And they did that for 30 minutes, two or three times a week for a month. At the end of the month, there was a significant difference in the blood results of the group that wrote about emotional trauma compared to the group that wrote about daily events. Wow. That shows you how powerful the mind-body connection is, even in a condition that we're all acknowledging is a biochemical condition with a genetic basis called rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. The same thing applied to a group of people with asthma that they tested, is that the people who wrote about traumatic events and emotional stuff and got it off their chest and wrote about it on paper did better than the people who wrote their grocery list out for half an hour. And they had better lung function, so it was objective measurement. There's a tremendous amount of scientific evidence that has accumulated over the years supporting mind-body conditions. And yet, despite that, there's no pharmaceutical company lobbying for more treatment in this way. Of course. And the hospitals and the, if you will, the medical industry makes a lot more money doing other types of things. So there's a financial disincentive. And there isn't a training program, unfortunately, that is widely disseminated to do the things that we're talking about today. So there's a variety of reasons why, despite the fact, and, and the doctor in Seattle that I was speaking to, David Hanscom, uh, I mentioned earlier, he said there's more evidence for this mind-body approach to pain and back pain than there is for spinal surgery. Mm-hmm. And he's a spinal surgeon. <laughs> he said there's various complications to surgery. People don't even talk about some of the long-term complications. He does spinal surgery, but he's cut down his amount, a tremendous amount. One of the things he found was that some of the people that he initially saw that he thought maybe would need spinal surgery, he put them through a six-week program of educational, breathing exercise, kind of an overall health program. He said, come back in six weeks and we'll prepare you for surgery. And he found that a lot of them came back and said, I don't need surgery anymore. I'm feeling better. Wow. And all they were doing was kind of the mind-body stuff and some, you know, some breathing and yoga right. and exercise and a few things. And so it's fascinating how people that you assume in that when they're in that environment, they're going to get surgery for a particular painful condition, sometimes don't need it. And I wish we could find those people earlier, not at the very last moment in one clinic in Seattle who happens to have this awareness. Uh, that's why we're trying to educate the public. That's why I spend time with uh, writing the book and meeting with people, because I just feel there's a tremendous amount of suffering and pain and, and unhappiness and cost related to the lack of awareness of these types of approaches and this type of condition. Of course. No, that makes perfect sense. On the on the tumor stuff, what your, what's your take on it? Because that seems like one of the mysteries in a way that, you know, it's such a common thing. And yet when we try to figure out why, it's like, I don't know. You know, there's like all sort of theories about a bunch of things that can play a role, but nothing that we can say, well, because of these, these causes the... Cancer Cancer is complicated. I think that's what you're referring right. to. You had mentioned it before. Um, my current thinking is, and this is based on some 
uh, scientific stuff I've read and also my uh, experience. I think that probably 30% of cancer is genetic. Mm -hmm. Probably another 30% is environmental in terms of exposure to chemicals, toxins, et cetera, et cetera. Some seems to be completely random that we haven't yet been able to explain at all. And some of it may be related to life circumstances, emotions, stress, et cetera. It's just really hard to pin down. One thing that Andrew Weil uh, wrote about uh, some years ago, the uh, integrative mm -hmm. medicine uh, specialist and writer, was he said, by the time a body gets to cancer, it's at such a level of dysfunction that you can't necessarily reverse it by the techniques that he likes to use, you know, with breathing exercises, things that we do as well, emotional, et cetera. And so you've gotten to, that's kind of the end point. So the goal is to catch things earlier in the process to instill healthy habits, certainly good eating, stress management. I'd love to teach that at the middle school level or the high school level more. I think they're starting to do that in some mm -hmm. school systems, teach kids relaxation, meditation, yoga. I'd like to add journaling and other things to that educational or hygiene program and catch things earlier so we could influence uh, these diseases. But some of it does seem to be just a genetic trigger that goes off in certain people because we see it in the families and it runs right. in the family. But we just don't know if there's going to be more time and more research to understand that. And I guess what makes it tricky, as you're saying, is that because there may be multiple factors, also what we don't understand is the combination of those factors. Because, you know, some people may have a genetic predisposition or not a predisposition or the other way, but either life issues and experience and stress or through exposure, through saying, why is it that, you know, 10 people can be exposed to the same chemicals, but two will be hit harder than the others aren't, you know? I do know that so many there's... of the top cancer treatment centers in the country, including our own UCLA in Los Angeles, including um, Cedars-Sinai, you've heard of wellness centers, mm -hmm. including many of the other cancer institutes around the country. They're not just doing chemotherapy. They're support groups. They're psychotherapy. They're doing yoga and meditation. They're doing a variety of things to holistically try to heal somebody. Right. I don't think they're doing this just to sort of add a, a little, uh, you know, humanistic side. I think they think it's important. Right. And we, we just haven't honed it in as well, perhaps, as we have for the chronic back pain area. But the people have attempted to look at personality characteristics and, for example, response to breast cancer treatment and that some personalities may do better in terms of recovery. Mm -hmm. It may actually be the, the feistier person who doesn't just go along with the treatment, but questions it and that kind of thing. Sure. But again, I'm not an expert in that area, and I sure. encourage people who are interested in that to do some of their own reading or research, or maybe you'll find someone who can speak on that subject uh, in, in your podcast. I hear all about pain, but there seems to be so much depression in our society. It almost feels like depression is just a, a pain exhibiting itself mentally, not more physically. Is there anything very, to that? Very good question. I think there is. Um, one of the psychotherapists I worked with for about 10 years with this before he retired, Donald Dubin, really felt like TMS pain and depression were two sides of the coin. Hmm. And that he would sometimes see people who they got rid of their pain. Maybe a year later, they'd come back, call him and say, hey, you know, my pain's fine, but I'm just not, I'm feeling kind of down. I want to talk to you about some stuff. And it seemed to be related to some of the same core issues, sometimes self-esteem issues, sometimes the self-attack issues being hard on yourself, et cetera. So I wouldn't say that all depression is exactly the same as this, but I think that there, there's a relationship here that's important. And I think in some way, at least my experience of it, is that once I've started shifting away from more looking for physical 
reasons like oh i have this problem it's a physical thing what's going on with my gut or this and that once i started accepting more the fact that okay this has a psychological basis paradoxical is where i felt more depression knock on the door because it was like okay so the body's ultimately kind of fine but then is when i acknowledge okay then all that sort of pain weirdness that i was manifesting physically uh, it's somewhere else and so it showed up as okay it is a psychological thing and there we are so it, you you became more aware of feelings and they weren't always wonderful feelings mm-hmm. but they were important feelings yep. they were things you needed to be aware of and to and to process and as you look at those feelings and deal with the uh depressive type of side that you can get healthier because you're not manifesting it just as a palpitation of the heart or an Mm -hmm. upset stomach yeah absolutely now um, tell us a little bit about your book because i know that as you mentioned john sarno wrote sort of four books that are the foundation of all the tms uh, discussion you just came out with one tell us both how What's different about this? I mean, of course, there's continuity with Sarno's work, but obviously you have also, you have found reasons why you wanted to do something slightly different. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Well, I, th- I thought that Dr. Sarno did a wonderful job discussing the psychology behind this, but there were some things I heard from patients over the years who read his books. One was, he doesn't get a lot into treatment. Mm-hmm. So I've spent quite a bit of my career in this area focusing a little more on treatment about Uh, 15 years ago, I wrote the Mind Body Workbook, which is a 30-day journaling process because I felt there wasn't as much in his books on what do you do after you accept the diagnosis or understand the diagnosis. The recent book, Think Away Your Pain, I also wanted to focus on explaining the condition in a very clear, I felt, more contemporary way. I know that some people are turned off a little bit by the very Freudian emphasis of Sarno's work. Mm -hmm. I'm not turned off by that, but... I wanted to kind of present it in more contemporary terms. I wanted to go a lot more into understandable, clear neuroscience and how the brain controls pain. And my subtitle is Your Brain is the Solution to Your Pain. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to stay away from some of the terms that maybe people are uncomfortable with, like psychosomatic, which, again, is a perfectly reasonable term. It comes from the Greek psycho mind, soma body. But when it comes to it's it's it, it people perceive sometimes it's a negative right so i worked on this book for eight years on and off it represents a, a 20 my 20 years of experience in the field and i wanted to give clear understanding of the the diagnosis the treatment and go through the stages of healing in detail and uh, a lot more scientific evidence so that both the general public that would read it and even naive meaning not aware physicians, healthcare providers of various sorts would get something out of it that would be could be read at different levels by different people. Some people will read every chapter, some will read just some of the chapters. And I've uh, been getting some good feedback that it's uh, they like the writing, they find it clear, and that they like the emphasis on treatment. And uh, you know, it's it's an easy book to read. There's not long pieces of text without any headlines and things. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of subheadings and things so that people can read stuff that feels relevant to them and jump around if they want to. And that's where I guess I want to really encourage listeners to think about this because whether it applies to you, and I'm sure that out of the all the people listening, there will be people who are hearing this and say, huh, 
these sound eerily familiar, the dynamics that then lead to a TMS diagnosis or your personality type or something like this, whether it does apply to you, whether it applies to loved ones and people you know, worth a shot. Worst case scenario, you read a book, you gain a little knowledge about it. That's the worst thing that can happen. Best case scenario, you pick it up and it may actually give you tools to either help you or again loved ones with some problems that maybe have been bugging them physically for a really long time. That's really, there's not much to lose there. So but the exciting thing about this approach is, you know, if I cure the same condition with a shot or a pill, you don't really learn anything about right. yourself. If you cure yourself with the help of this book or with the help of a visit to myself or a practitioner who does this work, you actually gain some insight into yourself as a person and you can grow. Wonderful to do that and recover from a health condition. So extra benefits involved. Yeah, that's a good deal if there ever is one, right? Yeah. That's a... Uh... Um, you were bringing up earlier something about sort of the lessons of pain. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, one of the things I, f I think it's important for people to grasp is that pain is more complicated than we often assume that it is. When you touch a hot stove and your hand moves away quickly, it's very simple to understand. You're sure. avoiding damage. You're avoiding a burn. It's actually a reflex at the spinal cord level. The hand pulls back before you're even in your brain aware that it's hot. Um, that we understand. But chronic pain is different. Um, so I, I came up with seven lessons uh, of pain. I'll mention a couple of them here that I think might be interesting to the listeners. One of them is that um, the cause of chronic pain is often the nervous system and the brain, not structural injury. So we think about, you know, you hit your arm or you hurt your hand. It's an injury. That's why you're hurt. But when it comes to chronic pain, it may not anymore be related to the back. It's more related to the brain or the nervous system. Uh, one of the endorsers of my book on the back cover, a neurosurgeon in Santa Barbara wrote, chronic low back pain is more likely a brain than a back disorder. He got it, you know, and he treats the back. He operates on the spine. Um, another really important lesson, pain does not always mean disease or damage. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does sometimes, but it doesn't always mean it can be a signal of something else. And we talk about the TMS. And the severity of the pain does not always correlate or connect with the severity of the condition or the potential damage to the body. I'll give you an example. Some of you may have heard of someone or had yourself a kidney stone. Mm -hmm. Excruciating pen for men. They claim it's as powerful a pain as when women have childbirth. Been there, done that. All right. So much fun. Five minutes after the stone passes, the guy's ready to go out and have a beer with the buddies. Yep. No damage is done. He moves on. Excruciating pain does not necessarily mean damage, especially if it passes through. Uh, speaking of childbirth, the woman's in excruciating pain. Five minutes later, a baby's put on her chest, and she's the happiest lady on earth. And a few months later, she forgets about the pain of childbirth. She's ready to get pregnant again, or perhaps a few years later. But the point is that pain doesn't always correlate. Mm -hmm. A very mild pain in your neck with exertion and a little flutter in the chest in a man 55 could be angina, a very severe heart condition, mild pain, a very mild pain in your abdomen. Maybe you forgot to get your colonoscopy when you turn 50, could be cancer. So not every pain means mm -hmm. something bad, of course, but the severity of the pain, although it worries us, doesn't necessarily mean it's a severe condition. Some of the most severe pain I see every week is someone who's had a back spasm on, on the weekend and they come in there and spasm and three days later, it's gone, mm -hmm. or a week, sometimes less. 
So agonizing pain doesn't mean agonizing damage. Important to know. Uh, one final one. Pain signals are a two-way street. We often assume that the pain is going one direction from your back or your arm or your elbow to your brain. You're sensing it. You're feeling it. And that's all that happens. It turns out the brain, we've learned from scientific studies, sends signals the other direction as well. When, when I sat down in this chair an hour ago to talk with, with you, my buttocks briefly sensed the chair. Then my brain turned off those signals. Right. Those signals are still going up there. The right. brain had no interest in them. Well, maybe about after half an hour, I needed to cro- uncross my legs. <laughs> so I briefly was aware of the chair. Here I did it again. And I shuffled, and now I'm back in a comfortable position. In five seconds, I'll forget about it. It's a two-way street. Your brain is saying, no, don't need to listen to this. unimportant. And your brain is saying, hey, this is something I need to focus on. But in the case of chronic pain, the things we're talking about, the brain spends too much time amplifying and focusing those signals instead of sending a signal down, hey, you're going to be okay. Things are going to be cool. I'm going to heal. You're going to be fine. So you can take over that role of your sort of unconscious brain and tell yourself once you've learned appropriately from doctors that your condition is a benign condition, you can tell yourself, hey, it's time to heal. I'm done with this. I'm turning this signal off. It's a two-way street, and I'm sending the right signals down here from now on. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's time to heal. You know, where you can tell yourself that, yes. No, this is as fascinating as it gets because it's really such a revolutionary perspective on what we normally think of as health and healthcare management and everything else that I really, really encourage anybody who may remotely think that they may affect their life, check it out, read more about it, find out more about it because it's truly a, a radical shift in perspective for sure. Anything else you want to throw out there or mention? Anything? Uh... No, it's a great opportunity to talk with you. I've enjoyed it. Beautiful. Um, you know, it's funny. It seems like a radical shift, but as you said, this is all scientifically grounded. Uh-huh. If you if you ever, Don, John Sarno's retired now, but if you met him, he's a bow-tied, uh, you know, conservative uh, doctor. Sure. Uh, he was a specialist in aphasia, which is a, a, a speech condition from strokes and published a bunch of research on that. This is scientifically grounded. This is magical only because it works but it's right. it's not hocus pocus and i'm a very conventionally trained physician as well who just has a broader perspective because of my own life experiences and especially the one meeting john sarno 30 years ago and using this method in my practice but um this is good medicine that's expansive and it therefore represents a radical shift but it's not radical medicine in my no, opinion absolutely. it's just good solid treatment and healing and and working with one another to to progress in in a constructive way and right there i mean the fact that as you said you know you went through medical school became a doctor you know you didn't have to go this route because you know you could have done the most standard typical route ever and in part of your practice you do because you do deal with that as well you just this was a choice because it made sense to you because you saw it in experience in a way that hey this is real it's not that it was like well, I'll kind of go that route because it's easier than do the standard way. No, I mean, you have done the standard way and it just, this is, applies. Yeah, it worked for me. It worked for the 175 patients who I telephoned from Sarno's office the following summer when I did a research study. And now it's worked for, I'd estimate, somewhere between 2,200, 2,200, 2,500 patients that I've treated over the last 20 years. And it's worked for tens of thousands of patients around the country who've seen other practitioners who take a mind-body approach, mm-hmm. and I don't know how many from Dr. Sarno's books and other things. So 
It's an opportunity for healing if people are open to it. Doesn't work for everybody. You have to find the right patients. We're good at that. And if it's for you, it is a miraculous thing. Great. Is there a, do you have a website or anything where people can find you or? www.mindbodymedicine.com. Wow. You got that .com with the perfect net. That's. I got it early in the internet, yeah. 97, before oh, everybody had grabbed it up. Oh, you out. Yeah, I was yeah. like, how did you get that name? Mm -hmm. That's, that's brilliant. Mind mod, mindbodymedicine.com. As easy as it gets, makes it easy for you guys. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. This was great. fantastic i dig everything he says i mean it's, with the pharmaceutical company so out of control and here's a cat that's like you know if you just relax if you just focus and try to figure out where the trouble's coming from and obviously it's not everything there is real pain there is real damage but i'm sure a huge percentage of people are going to be benefited by this no stuff. it is and you know i'm waiting for the day when i can put myself in in the successful case study column because i do fit that i think i fit this profile to a t like everything about what's going on with my body, everything about my personality, everything fits this. So I completely believe that that's exactly what's going on with me. I'm still in the process. I'm still probably better than I was a few months ago, not quite out of the woods yet. So I, I'm a work in progress. I'll update you as it goes. Well, Dr. Chester's out there. The information's on the, on the, on the show notes. So if you need to get a hold of him, I'm certain he'll be happy to talk to you. Absolutely. Now, a few other things we should throw out there. Taoist Lecture Series. It's out there, seven hour plus, download away. Um, you can check it out oh, in the episode notes. There's the direct link. Uh, quick thank you to, if you guys want audiobooks or anything else that audible.com carries, please go through our link. They give us a cut, which is always sweet and nice. Uh, you're still in time for, you may be still in time, depending on when you hear it. If you hear it on the day when we release, we're probably still in time to get a Valentine's Day chocolates from Coracao. There's a whole bunch of sets on their website that you can order from the less expensive to the crazy fancy and everything in between. So if chocolate is your choice, check it out. Um, the link is in the episode notes. And of course, as usual, please, 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 if you can do your shopping, whenever you shop on Amazon, if you can use our link, you help us a ton. It's much, much appreciated to do so. You know, it's come to my attention occasionally some of those uh, links on our webpage are blocked out by ad blockers. So you can hop around that, go up and just disconnect for that page and you'll see them right there. So if you go to the main page and you don't see the Amazon link or you don't see the Onnit link, it's uh, it's just been ad blocked, but they're up there. You know, a simple way, because they are tied together, is if you go instead at daniellebolelli.com, you click on any of the book cover and Amazon window will open up and at that point search for anything you want and you will be just as good as if you had clicked on the Amazon link. So same thing. Uh, thank you to Daisy House for the music. And I think it's now time to thank a few folks who are sweet enough to donate for something that we give out for free. Let the pottering begin. Here we go. We have Serve One Company. Very sweet. Thank you so much. Uh, John Atterbury. 
uh, which, you know, sooner or later I may learn how to pronounce your name, but maybe not. I'll just, you know what, I may throw a different version each time, we'll see. Alexander Kuzner, again, total random guess uh, on how to pronounce his last that name. Sound really nice. Yeah, you know, I'm just gonna even stop second guessing myself and roll with them. <laughs> David Peterson, Charles King, Aaron McLaughlin, Matthias Ailstock. Ooh, damn, I don't know how to read this one. Sharoin? I have no idea, sorry, man. They're just beyond Sharoin. I have no clue. Brisco, that's the last name. Catherine Booth, Ako Shafe, Sergei Zolotarev. I'm taking a wild guess, say Russia. Hmm, Sergei, I would say so. Jonathan Waterloo, bad for Napoleon, I guess. And uh, Randy White. Uh, John Hatfield, Desmond Colton, uh, Eric Seigler, Seigler, Imran Murray, Chris Talent. You guys are awesome. Thank you so, so very much. Quite a few of you are recurrent donors who are doing this every month. It's deeply, deeply appreciated. Anything else we need to throw out there? Quick shout out to Kiva.org. Go check it out. Get yourself a, a loan and help out some folks around the world. We did $20,000 in loans last year. So we're going to aim to see if we can do another 30 to get us to 50 for a two-year total. And uh, a lot of folks helped out, and we sure appreciate it. It's, uh, it's a great way to kind of just lend a hand to folks in the planet. Beautiful. Have a wonderful day. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. In questo cazzo, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great. It's fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. Get back to work.